Welcome back to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Today my guest is Joan Yao. Joan is a Vice President of Investments at Kickstart Ventures, the corporate venture capital arm of Global Telecom. Prior to Kickstart, she was an investment manager for Southeast Asia at LGD Venture Philanthropy, a global impact investment firm headquartered in Europe. In 2015, she served as a consultant to the Secretary of Trade and Industry of the Republic of the Philippines, advising on policies and programs related to MSME development, tech startups, inclusive business, and social enterprise. Now let's talk to her. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. Hi, Rahul. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Philippines has 7,107 islands, right? Yes, or 7,641, depending on uh, which sources we believe. <laughs> okay, so uh, the 7,107 is a number that all my Filipino key, uh, num- friends keep mentioning. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Why, is, why did you mention 7,641? <laughs> Apparently, uh, they did a recount back in 2017 okay. and sent a newspaper uh, article to inform all of us that uh, there were more islands than uh, they had told us in school. Um, so <laughs> it's tough even for us to to remember that it's now 7,641. I like 7,107 personally a lot more myself. Yeah, it, it could be also because, uh, you know, some of the islands keep disappearing. <laughs> some High tide, low tide, you never know. Low tide, really. yeah. So uh, where are you from in the Philippines? I was born and raised in Manila. So I'm Filipino-Chinese by, I guess, background or ethnicity. But, you know, my grandparents, I think, moved from uh, Fujian province or something back in the 1930s or 40s. And so I've been here ever since. At school, like, what were your interests other than studies? (laughs) I, I have to say I had quite the tiger mom. So I did study quite a bit. But I would say probably interests. I read a lot as as a child, just from like when as early as I can remember, I was I was reading fairy tales. But as I got older, you know, a lot of mystery books. Interestingly, like Nancy Drew, Sherlock Holmes, Greek mythology. Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. <laughs> Aesop's fables, Bible stories, like you name it. Like if it was there, I would read it. And so you know, I would say kind of fiction and poetry have have always been interests, and like music too. I guess you could say like. I don't know, I've, I've always been interested in, in the stories that, that, that people tell, right? Both music and, and, and kind of, you know, books that you read. It's always about kind of the narrative. And, and I think for, from a young age, I've, I've, I've always been interested in, in telling stories, and reading about stories. Why do you think you got into reading? In my case, you know, my mom reads a lot, whether it's newspaper or other things. And then I used to pretend to read even before I could read. <laughs> That's awesome. Because he's just mimicking the person. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. Like my nanny, my childhood nanny, used to read to me to go to bed. I was like one or two. At some point, I memorized the stories, right? So literally, like I would open the book and like pretend to read, and I would actually like be telling the story. But it's because I remembered already the story, but you know, I couldn't read yet. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know. I mean, there's. I think some some level there of like escaping to new worlds like I don't know about you but one of my favorite things to do when I'm not working and before the pandemic was to travel because you know you, you get to see and explore things like outside of what you're used to and what you know and I guess for me like books were the same you know you got to yeah. stand in someone else's shoes you know like experience thing through another point of view 
So I've always yeah. enjoyed that. I, I wanted to say, you know, actually that I didn't expect to be in in finance. My first internship was in banking, but that was very surprising to me because I didn't think much of numbers. I, I thought I would end up in marketing or something. But after kind of my first internships and I made my first financial model, um, you're going to laugh, but after I made my first financial model and I wrote my first report on it, I kind of realized that the numbers tell a story. And so <laughs> really, I, so in, in many ways, honestly, like what I feel like I do in, in VC and just in investing in general, my whole career, I feel is interpreting the story that the numbers tell me. So, you know, the numbers tell the story and I read it and, you know, I put my own spin on it. And I share that story with, you know, our investment committee. And yeah, in a weird way, in a weird way, I feel like what I do in VC is some form of storytelling. And every, I don't know, every entrepreneur, right? Every company that I meet is 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 a different book. <laughs> yeah. I think it's kind of true because uh, so I, recently I've been trying to learn the portfolio construction model. Mm. And the basis of everything that you've, like, like think of like you know, the, the investment size, uh, the number of investment, the size of funds, everything comes from that numbers that you work with, right? The model that you work with. So yeah, I think it's kind of true, but I'm not sure it's telling a story. <laughs> <laughs> the numbers speak to me, <laughs> You started off in venture philanthropy. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. So how is that different from a, a traditional VC fund? Absolutely. And what is it to begin with? Yeah, so just to provide a bit more like context on that, I guess. Like uh, my first job out of college was with a group called LGT Venture Philanthropy. We were backed by the princely family of Liechtenstein. Try explaining that to, to people. And I covered Southeast Asia for them for, for six okay. years, actually. So the mission at LGT VP was to improve the quality of life of less advantaged people. And we did this kind of by investing, and I'll t tell you more about what investing looked like for us, but we invested in kind of nonprofits and social enterprises, working in healthcare, education, agriculture, energy, and sustainable livelihoods, right? So we would write checks of between $200,000 up to a million. So today, what we would call like seed or series A, but, you know, back then in 2009, we didn't really have those kind of terms to help companies prove out their business models and eventually scale up. A lot of what we did in Southeast Asia was more seed stage stuff. So we invested in a company uh, called Rags to Riches here in the Philippines, which, you know, thankfully is still alive today. And also an agricultural company called Kenimer Foods, um, also in the Philippines. The idea with venture philanthropy, and remember this was back in 2009, was in traditional philanthropy, you can give, you know, kind of an outright donation. Someone is hungry, yeah. I give you money so you can buy food. You need yeah. money to study, I give you a scholarship so you can study, right? But kind of once you've spent that dollar, so to speak, uh, on their education, on their meal, like it, 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 it's, it's not gone, but it's, it's helped them and, and that's kind of where the money's gone to, right? The idea with venture philanthropy was to kind of invest that money towards helping a nonprofit or a social enterprise to build like stronger organizations or stronger business models so that they could scale up, become more sustainable and help more people 
in a continuous fashion. So, so the idea was instead of like, I guess like, you know, giving one fish is like, how can I yeah, teaching them exactly right. Or, or build a better boat, right. To catch more fish yeah. and whatever. Like, yeah. so I think that was kind of more the mission in LGT's case. I think the mission wasn't to make a market rate return from the funds that we were investing but to use those funds to build like stronger institutions that could make a positive change. So that's, I think, a little bit the, the difference between like venture philanthropy, what I did kind of the first six years of my career to today. But if you'll allow me, I, I will say kind of something that has changed kind of a lot since then, right? There are kind of some pretty amazing companies today that 10 to 15 years ago, really, I believe, would have been called social enterprises. And we take it for granted. You know, like you and I, like we, we live in tech every day. We talk about tech every day, platforms, growth, all this stuff, no? But one of the things that, 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 that really blows my mind now is we tend to take for granted that today everyone has a mobile phone, that someone can build an app, people will sign up for it, you know, and we're off to the races. We're like tracking week on week growth and GMV and whatever, right? But 10 to 15 years ago, if you wanted to do something with a Sari Sari store in the middle of nowhere or a warung, right? If you wanted to work with farmers, if you wanted to extend financial services, let alone healthcare, it was very difficult to do that at scale because to reach these people, you'd need to deploy like actual people on the ground and branches yeah. to work with them, to educate them, to measure their progress, right? But today, technology, the mobile phone, right, is enabling at least some of that to be done online. And that kind of has radically reduced, right, the cost of yeah. serving these markets. So to put it in tech speak, the unit economics of serving this market like really have changed such that these markets, you know, don't need to be considered like a social enterprise anymore. They don't yeah. need venture philanthropy necessarily because, you know, venture capital seeking a market return can actually like step in. And, you know, I would say that wasn't possible 10 to 15 years ago when, when I started working. So it's, it's been very, for me, that has been kind of one of the most interesting things. Yeah. Rapid reduction in the cost in uh, providing products and services right yeah that makes a big difference there's always a question like so e even in indian parliament maybe like six seven years back that like you know why are you so why is it important for the government to go into digital payments and things like that for like a really poor person who does not have a, even a bank account how is this going to help uh, but if you look <laughs> now yeah, even in the most remotest place of uh, India, you, you everybody has a bank account. Absolutely. Because, yeah, the KYC cost has rapidly come down and uh, the cost of pro providing these services is like, yeah, uh, next to zero. Yeah. So, again, kind of the, the transformation, if you take a step back, right, and, and think about when I was starting my career, I'm 35 now, right? So when I was 20, like, just a lot of the, the social services that we see were not possible to provide at a, a kind of meaningful scale back then because the costs were too high. And that's why venture philanthropy, right? So it's it's really been, been quite amazing to see. Yeah. In that sense, I think uh, Google, uh, AWS, 
uh, just internet service providers all these have been like great venture philanthropy initiatives in a sense in a way right i mean you're building i guess the infrastructure for for these things to be possible yeah yeah also smartphones i forgot yes right and connectivity uh, all these things have have improved so much over the past decade what is your investment thesis now at kickstart sure so as you know kind of we are affiliated with globe telecom and ayala corporation uh, here in the philippines globe uh, the leading telco in the country and ayala the, the one of the largest conglomerates you know spanning multiple uh, business units which i can go into later but we started in 2012 with our first fund which you know i now fondly just call kickstart 1 Kickstart One is an evergreen fund, so you know this is the same kind of pool of capital we've been investing out of since since the beginning. And here we invest kind of you know a hundred thousand dollars up to a million in seed to Series A startups with a focus on like the Philippine market, right? So the idea with Kickstart Fund One is to invest in Philippine success stories and like continue to do our part. to like grow and contribute to the Philippine startup ecosystem right so so the investment thesis of of kickstart 1 is really that digitization is going to transform how like filipino consumers and enterprises like do things and the kind of mandate or focus of this fund is to support the growth of that and you know ultimately kind of grow like philippine success stories right we also actively deploy out of our third and latest fund which is a little confusingly called the active fund yeah it stands for ayala corporation technology innovation venture fund but nobody nobody says that it's a bit of a mouthful but the active fund invests it's a 180 million dollar fund so so it's it's uh, substantial and so we invest out of this one 2 to 10 million dollars in series a to c companies globally The active fund I would say serves the innovation mandate of Ayala Corporation which you know as I shared is a large and very diversified conglomerate uh, in the country we have holdings in property in banking in telecommunications in energy generation in industrials electronics manufacturing infrastructure healthcare and education and a few others I sure I'm sure I've missed but because yeah. kind of of the broadness of this group we really look for technology from around the world that represents a compelling vision of the future right uh, whether it's for connectivity right we invested in a company out of singapore called transcelestial doing kind of laser communications or of yeah. education we invested in a company called skillshare which does education for like the creative sector payments invested in a company called zendit out of Indonesia and even environmental monitoring right a company called Clarity out of the US so we believe i guess with the active fund that obviously while there's great innovation that happens locally and we seek to cover that with fund 1 we also look for kind of innovation from around the world that we can invest in and then help bring into the country you know through our networks and connections uh, but first of all kind of by engaging with them via investment So that's a little bit kind of how we do things. Why invest globally? I mean, funds tend to focus on a particular geography, right? Right. Uh, um, and, and most of the companies that you mentioned are outside of Philippines. Understood. Yeah, I guess so. The first fund, you know, as mentioned, is kind of what we use to focus on like homegrown stories. But I think you know the second thing is kind of some of the 
technological innovations that that we see and want to bring into the country, you know, do exist outside of 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 our home market. And you know, our view is if we can invest in it and kind of try to try to infuse uh, their technology kind of into the platform that the Ayala provides, it kind of ultimately is is beneficial, right? Not just to the group, but to to the market, For the country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that that's what really drives, I think, looking even beyond our borders uh, to the U.S. and and to the rest of Southeast Asia. What is your personal opinion? Are like a, a conglomerate like Ayala Group? Are they better off investing in startups or having an internal corporate innovation? <laughs> uh, I think it's really both in Globe and in Ayala's case, it's both. Right? There's a guy uh, named Scott Anthony. I don't know if you've heard of him. He literally wrote the book on this, right? He calls it dual transformation. And he talks about like transformation A, which is repositioning today's business to maximize resilience and transformation B, which is creating tomorrow's growth engine, right? So uh, kind of the way we see it, right? With Kickstart and RVC activities, we are kind of transformation B, right? What we see in the market, right? Entrepreneurialism, dynamism, creative solutions, right, and, and customer orientation that startups have, we do our best to, number one, like, invest in this and support this, but also to share these stories with our LPs, right, at, at various levels of, of the organization. So at the higher levels of management, like, you know, whether it's via roundtables or, like, meetings with founders, even reports, we try to give an overview of the landscape. We provide insight into like how business is evolving, especially because of tech, as we've discussed. But also at the operating level, you know, our BD business development team kind of reaches out to the relevant departments across the conglomerate to make introductions to startups for like potential commercial opportunities. I think both initiatives are essential. Transformation B. What we do is kind of what tracks the pulse of what's going on out there. And then we try to feed that back to the folks inside of the mothership, right, as we call it. But transformation A, the innovation or, you know, that happens at the core, it can't really happen without receptive people inside of, of the organization. So I would say like corporate, internal corporate innovation, at least in, in our experience, is kind of really about like evangelizing in inside of of corporations, you know, to get them out of the mindset of business as usual. This is how we've always done things, or we can do this ourselves. We don't need to work with other people. You know, yeah. kind of. There's a bit of a head in the sand sometimes, like mentality, right? Like, what's wrong with what we're doing now? And our job is to like go out there and say this is what's happening. Like, you might want to look into this. And I would say internal corporate innovation. Uh, helps amplify that message in the organization, right? Because we're kind of, in a way, we're Transformation B, we're the outsiders. And we're like, look at yeah. us, guys, right? But it helps a lot to have partners inside of the corporate that then kind of say like, yeah, guys, really, you should look at this. Yeah, that's kind of been my experience anyway. Yeah, I think, I guess uh, it comes from the top, right? The, from the person who's running it uh, right now. Yes, we're very, very lucky, super, super lucky to have, I would say, like, very, very supportive management. So, like, the head chairman of, of Ayala Corp, Jaime Augusto, uh, Zobel de Ayala, is, like, 
um, extremely supportive of kind of the innovation initiatives. The president and CEO of Globe, Ernest Gu, also kind of, I think none of the work at Kickstarter would have been possible like without like their support, you know, saying, as you were saying, that this is important and we should pay attention to it and invest like time, not just money, but time to understand it and see how we can integrate this into like what we're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one last thing. So you mentioned your uh, first fund is an evergreen fund. You know? <laughs> I came across this term only recently because, you know, uh, Sequoia was apparently moving in that direction. So h- how does it work? So like, how, I mean, then how do you measure your returns and stuff? Does it change when, when you compare it to like a 10 year term? Obviously. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. Well, okay. So, so there are a few aspects to this, right? I think, practically speaking, like just first, let's talk about kind of where the money comes from and 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 how that all works, right? Like, I think the first thing is, you know, we're we're lucky enough to have the support of Globe, as mentioned, and so with the Evergreen Fund, you know, there is some portion that is, you know, kind of paid in or contributed by by Globe, uh, and and that's kind of mutually agreed upon you know, kind of on an annual basis between like Kickstarter and, and, and Globe. But apart from that, you know, we do also see like um, proceeds from our investments start to like come back. And then, you know, again, it's a discussion with Globe about like, you know, do we reinvest what we have made from our previous investments into like new deals? Um, so that's like, I would say just practically speaking on, on the investment side. So there's some fresh capital paid in, there's some like reinvestment that's being done. Uh, definitely kind of to your point, like how do you, how in the world do you compute like the returns on this fund? Returns. I would say there's a couple of, of, of ways and we, we tend to do both, right? Like I think one is just to do it on a like just gross kind of overall like basis, right? On an ROI basis, I think that's actually still fair, right? Meaning how much money did we invest and how much money did we get out of it? I think where it gets a bit tricky is perhaps in IRR because obviously yeah. like if it's been going on, let's say for 20 years, your IRR is not going to look great. Yeah. So the other approach we take is kind of to do it in a way in segments or, or, or vintages, right? So, okay, like let's look at the capital that we deployed, you know, in this kind of five-year term and like, how is that performed? Okay, then let's look at the next five or 10-year term. So so kind of breaking it up maybe a little bit into into periods or like sub-vintages inside of this evergreen structure helps to capture a, a little bit like performance and, you know, how it improves or does not improve over kind of, you know, the, the many years that, that we invest. So you mentioned about the digitization and you know, investing in the digi- digitization of the consumer and the enterprise experience. Mm. So how far along do you think Philippines is? In that oh, way? that's that's a great question. You know, I was I was doing uh, kind of some research on this, right? First of all, actually, let me say that you know we really have come such a long way, right, from 2012 when Kickstart began. Maybe the first point I want to make, actually, in in all of this and and whatever the wisdom, <laughs> if if any, that I want to share is really how timing is so so very important. You know, in 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 two thousand twelve, from two thousand twelve to two thousand fifteen, we invested in some great companies, some great founders, you know, great ideas and insights into the market. But 
if the market isn't there, <laughs> yeah, you know, we invested in, uh, for example, a company that was trying to be like the Warby Parker of the Philippines. Not inherently a bad idea, right? We've seen companies in Indonesia, the US, like, you know, get built on this premise. I think there's a company in Indonesia called Saturdays, right? That, that, that does this. In the Philippines now, a company called Sunnies also does this. But that company we invested in for it was a little bit too early for its time. Right, like it, it came to the market, and and the, the Filipino digital consumer was not yet there, and therefore, you know, as great as the products were, as great as the platform was, there were not enough people who were willing to buy this stuff online, online. to really yeah. like support the growth of that business. You know? So, it's I think it's a good way to illustrate uh, how how far kind of uh, the market has come, and also the importance of timing. I think I saw the market in the Philippines turn the corner in 2019. Before 2019, so like let's say between 2016 to 2018, if a B2C kind of Philippine startup would, would come to me, I would I would honestly be kind of like, are you sure? Right? Like, you know, I, I, I even went so far as to call B2C in the Philippines between kind of 2016 to, 20, to 2018, like the road to tears, right? Because it, 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 would, it was just such a slug. And 2019, I think, is when I, I saw things really start to change. And that would have been kind of two to three years, right, after you saw massive investments from the likes of Lazada and Shopee, but also Ant Financial and Tencent, right, through their investments in Gcash and, and Paymaya. So we really saw kind of e-commerce and fintech infrastructure start to be built up in the country. We saw logistics uh, also take off in a big way in the Philippines. So people kind of the the start of the the Filipino consumer coming online was was I would say really 2019, and then 2020 came around and just poured gasoline all over the place, right? And and it's yeah. just been kind of uh, a wildfire since then. To yeah. give some some numbers, you know, behind that, and obviously anyone who 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 knows the the Google Temasek report will 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 be able to see these numbers. But uh, just for our audience, right? Like in 2019. The Philippine uh, internet economy was valued at seven billion in 2020. That grew to nine billion, and between 2020 to 2021, there was a 93 percent growth to 17 billion. So 2021, the Philippine uh, Philippine digital economy ended up being worth 17 billion dollars. So, what is how do we contextualize that? Right, like your question, how much further is there to go? So towards that, I kind of looked at like Indonesia, right? Because arguably Indonesia is a little bit further along. They are a larger country as well. But if you looked at Indonesia's digital economy in 2019, it was valued at $40 billion. Google Temasek projects that the Philippine digital economy would be worth $40 billion by 2025. Honestly, I think we'll probably beat that target and, and get to it sooner. But, you know, even just from 17 today to 40, you know, in the next few years, uh, there's still massive headroom for growth. Indonesia's digital economy target, they're currently at 70 billion and targeting to grow to 146, right? Billion by 2025. The Philippine GDP is about 34%, one third of Indonesia's. So if you take yeah. kind of one third of 
yeah. that target, 146. 50 billion in the next few years, I think, is quite feasible. And then I, I think last note, you know, just, just to impress you with my math, <laughs> is the digital economy of the Philippines today is about 4.7% of total Philippine GDP. Indonesia currently, 6.6%. The digital economy is about 6.6% of total GDP. And certainly in, in more developed countries, we know that that number kind of is now pushing about 20, right? So yeah. we've come a long way, right? Yeah. Like from zero to like 5% of the economy now being driven by digital. But we know that, you know, there's there's massive, massive room still for, for that to, to expand. Yeah. I think COVID really helped with all this because now whether it's the elderly or just anyone else who had any inhibitions had no choice but to, you know, yeah, do everything uh, online. Groceries, right? Couldn't couldn't do it yeah. offline. If you were a business, paying bills, pay bills. If you were a business and you know you were hesitating to sell online, like there was no choice. You had no choice. There was yeah. no choice. So we really saw that. And also, you mentioned about the timing, right? You would always want to be slightly be uh, like ahead of you know making investment ahead of you know when it really takes off. Right? Mm. So, so what do you think are some of like the social movements or trends that you're keeping tab on, mm. uh, both in Philippines or across the region, that you think has a lot of potential? Absolutely, I think we see a lot of untapped potential. So, right, first of all, let's talk about what's already been built. So, to to my point, like earlier, what I already said, like e-commerce, like large scale, kind of you know big box e-commerce, if you will, right? That's been built up, fintech. It's been built up, but my God, like so many people still going after it, right? So that's still a work in progress. Logistics. I think we see more untapped potential in, I would say, niche or vertical focused e-commerce. So that looks like B2B e-commerce. We're seeing uh, more of that. Food, D2C brands, mother and baby, like, you know, so I think there's more in kind of the niche and vertical focused e-commerce that we'll see. SME enablement, right? Whether that's tools for SMEs, financing for SMEs, typically both uh, continues to be a trend. And then I would say uh, a little bit later down the road, again, you know, you can look at kind of what's being built up in, in Indo and, and take a page out of that book, right? I would say agriculture, healthcare, and education are also areas to keep an eye on. Although these verticals, I think, will need more of a mix of offline and online infrastructure. And I think that's what I've been personally thinking a lot about is, you know, it used to be if you thought about venture or if you thought, thought about startup, like investing in startups, it was just an app. You know, it would be something on web or, or on mobile and primarily like the, the, the means of distribution was primarily just digital. But I think it's evolving now. Venture, because that initial wave of disruption, you know, kind of was primarily digital. Um, like the next wave, I feel you have to address some of the harder, the harder sectors. And if you think about agriculture, if you think about healthcare, if you think about education, it's not purely online, right? Like yeah. there is an element there of kind of clinics to to treat patients there's an element there of, of 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 how do you get to schools or you know how do you actually pick up the goods from the farmers and so it'll be an interesting time because vcs will need to get comfortable 
with the the risk of investing in physical assets and infrastructure, not just primarily digital. Yeah, yeah. I think based on what you said, it, it kind of feels like you know you can look at other countries, maybe like China or India or even Indonesia, you know, to kind of figure out where things are going because everything that you mentioned is somewhat happened before. Exactly. In developed countries and then other developing countries. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing regarding fintech, you know, I read this in 2007, the Central Bank of Philippines, BSP, uh, became the first central bank in the world to have an office dedicated for financial inclusion. And I also read that 66% of Philippines still remain unbanked. Uh, so why is that? What happened? You know, I, you know, I like this conversation. It really all comes back to unit economics, what we discussed in the beginning, right? In a paradigm... I'm not saying it's it's the correct paradigm, but it is the paradigm where the way to reach your customer is via branches, like building more. Banks tend to run the calculations, right, on whether to open a new bank branch in the middle of nowhere or lend an extra one or two million dollars to their corporate customers, right? And, you know, they, they do the math on that and say, you know what, nah, I'll, just, corporate I'll customers. just lend an extra, you know. Yeah. So today, unfortunately, as you, as you mentioned, the financial infrastructure that most Filipinos tend to rely on would be uh, pawn shops, remittance centers, rural banks, and, and uh, microfinance institutions, their families in, I think, what is a unique Philippine thing, 5-6. Have you ever heard of 5-6? No, curious. 5-6 <laughs> literally means somebody on a motor, typically they're, they're in a motorcycle and they stop by your store. And they lend you 500 pesos or 5,000 pesos, roughly like $100, let's say. And they lend it to you on a Monday, come back on a Friday to collect six. So I lend you 500 and I come back and I collect 600 at the end of the week. So if you do the APR on that, it's fantastic. Yeah. But that's kind of been, you know, the, 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 the sad state right, of, of, of financial services in, in the country. Yeah. I would say that's slowly changing, right? And again, some statistics like Gcash today. Gcash is the leading mobile wallet and it is kind of owned or operated by, by Globe. Gcash today has 60 million users, 29 million daily logins, and 19 million transactions per day. Gross transaction volume uh, in 2021 for Gcash was about $70 billion. We also see, of course, a lot of digital banks getting set up. So I would say, you know, the mode of outreach is changing, right? If traditional banks are not willing to make the move to digital and, and want to stay with strategy of branches, um, I think there are now uh, quite a few well-funded players who are, go are going to try to go after that 66% uh, of, of unbanked, right? Yeah. And and you talked about this earlier as the example in India. I think there are now more sophisticated tools to assess credit risk. And there are yeah. more digital financial products um, that are available or are being developed to, to be offered. So it's early days still, right? Like, I mean, even because consumer behavior has to change. You know, if I am the family of an OFW, uh, an overseas Filipino worker, and all I've known is going to Western Union to pick up my my cash, or going to a pawn shop to to pick up my cash, and 
you know, now that happens on an app, it, it also does take things of time, but I think it is a matter of time. It's not, it's not an if, but, but when sort of deal. One thing that I've heard from my Filipino friends is that a lot of uh, money lenders are of Indian origin. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, so the, the stereotype, oh my God. <laughs> the, the stereotype of, of a 5-6 money lender, it, that tends to be an Indian guy. <laughs> and, and for some reason, my God, this is like we're gonna get into trouble for this role. Like, and 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 on top of this, like they sell you products apart from the loan. So it's it's like on top of selling you the loan, they'll have like brooms cleaning products, just like, and it's all like on the motorcycle. <laughs> so it's like you get a loan and a broom at the same time. That's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> If I were to compare with what happened in India, I, I think a lot of banks did not want to, uh, you know, pursue uh, like these customers who are unbanked, mostly because they did not have the purchasing power. And also the KYC cost was really high. Exactly. So, and, and then what happened is that uh, we brought in this uh, thing called Aadhaar, which is like the identity card, pretty standard for a country like Singapore or US, mm. but India did not have that. So that was first step. And then the second step was like, yeah, then the KYC cost kind of like reduced by 10x or more amazing then it makes it more a lot more easier to start a bank account and it's a lot cheaper for banks to you know allow people to you know, open accounts kind of thing i know uh, that's yeah and also then like if you can take initiatives like you know setting up a payment infrastructure i think in singapore there was a government initiative back in 2014 I think it's either called Post or Spot. Mm-hmm. It kind of allows people to instantly transfer yeah, money across uh, banks. Across banks. We, we have a, a couple yeah. of similar systems now. One is called Instapay and the other one is called PesoNet. But both are kind of interbank exchange kind of platform, digital digital exchange platforms. So that's starting to roll out. I, like I, I recently opened my, my bank app and now see that it is possible to send money from from my bank to other banks we did also i think in the middle of the pandemic which was not kind of the best time to roll this out but anyway we we started to roll out a national id system yeah i i would have to get back to you on the next podcast on kind of the number of people who have actually like signed up and registered for this like i i personally like went and, and registered in like July of last year and I just got my ID like this year. So so I think we're taking steps towards it, but kind of when like the ingredients are there, but like when they all come together and, and make a nice kind of recipe. So maybe a, another couple of years, I would say. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. When you have these things, these things in place, then it becomes like uh, even something like Google pay or like a wallet company to come instantly build on top of it. Like like we discussed before, it's like building that infrastructure. So it kind of makes it easier for innovation to happen. So I never really asked you so far uh, about startups and founders. So I'd like to know, like, how would you describe a great founder? Yeah, no, it's a great question. First and foremost, for me, just kind of in my experience and when I look at kind of the successful founders, I know the first thing that comes to mind is they know how to build a strong team around them. It's a bit cliche, but you know, to 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 build a startup, no one person can do it, right? And so I think a great founder from, you know, almost the get-go 
knows that they need to recruit kind of good partners on that journey. So they have, I think, a, a, a great ability to bring together the right talent, whether that is team members or advisors, investors, board members, to, to the table to move forward uh, on this journey. The other thing I see on in the best founders is they're very humble and open. You know, there there's not a lot of ego, or if there is, they certainly like do a great job of keeping it in check. You know, so they really listen. You know, they kind of admit their their mistakes, but at the same time, they're decisive, and that's hard, right? Like, how can you be open minded and humble, but at the same time have a strong enough like like core or, you know, point of view yourself to, after listening to all that, say, okay, but this is what we're going to do, right? The third thing, which is very much tied to the second thing is I think they listen to the market. They they listen to what the, the data is telling them, what the signals are telling them. I see, you know, a mistake that many first-time founders make is they, again, some, some of this bury their head in the sand mentality, like, um, if I just hit this goal against all odds, I'll succeed, right? Even if the data is telling you that it, it doesn't work, right? Like launching this product, like people are not responding to it, whatever. Sometimes founders can get like tunnel vision and say like, no, 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 no. Like this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. But I think like great founders listen to what the data is telling them, listen to what the team is telling them, what the market is telling them. They take responsibility for wrong calls, but they also adjust really quickly. I think that's the thing is that because with startups, right, especially if you have limited runway, time is money. Literally, time is money. If you make a wrong call, you have to be willing to pivot out of that wrong call as quickly as you possibly can. But I think a mistake that that, that a lot of uh, first-time founders make is they stick with something maybe a bit too long and then, you know, kind of run out of runway in, in the process. And then I guess lastly, like, you know, there's just like grace under pressure, right? Like they know how to kind of keep a cool head when stuff is, is all going wrong. And, you know, the pandemic is, is a good test of that. They still kind of have it in them to lead their teams and kind of project not like quite confidence in a way, like about, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move forward. Even if I'm sure they themselves have, a lot of doubts. So, you know, th- those are some of the things that just, if I look at kind of the folks that we've worked with, you know, companies that have delivered exits uh, for us, they're not necessarily the most like kind of big, noisy, you know, personalities. They, they really are just kind of quiet and, and, and get things done. Yeah. <laughs> I was just listening to you and thinking, my, my God, if you were to like, like observe a bunch of people and look for all these qualities. It's gonna ha- really hard be really hard to find such a person. It's it's unicorns, right? And and I guess yeah. that's what it is, right? It's like uh, unicorn unicorn founder. Right? Like, like the, maybe the first the first thing to, to finding a unicorn company is really like finding, finding a founder a or founding team that has this this unique set of 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 qualities. It's very difficult. I agree yeah. with you. And uh, one last question. So. How has the startup ecosystem evolved? I mean, we talked about like the kind of progress in digitization that has happened in the last 10 years, but how has the startup ecosystem improved uh, in the last 10 years? 
You know, in 2012, when Kickstarter came into the market, we were one of the few players there, right? One of the few incubators or accelerators in, in the market. There weren't, there was still a lot of fear and stigma, I think, around joining startups. So if you had a nice corporate job, why would you leave it to do this new thing, right? So I think it was a lot more difficult to, just from a social acceptance standpoint, to, to, to venture out and do something. If you were going to start, where were you going to find the support, right? Like where would you go to find developers for your business? Where were you going to go to find investors for your business? So I think kind of 10 years later, because we celebrated our 10th year uh, anniversary this year, what's been great to see is how the ecosystem has developed, right? So if you are a first-time founder, startup founder, um, there is now a community that you can tap into. There's a group, a Facebook group called Startup PH, which earlier this week I checked has 43,000 uh, members. So, you know, you can type in a request or whatever there and, you know, folks will respond to you. You'll easily be able to find people to have conversations with. I would say over the past 10 years, because of all the investments of the tech companies here in the country and startups that have, you know, started and either exited or closed down, either way, you know, that pool or that bench of tech talent has deepened across all all functions, right? So you can at least find someone who has built something that is, you know, perhaps somewhat adjacent to what you want to build. You'll find sales and marketing people that, that know how to, to sell um, your your product. So the, that pool of talent, I think, has, has deepened. On the investor front, again, you know, it, it used to be just kind of kickstart and maybe like a handful of other like players that would invest. Today, I think we have a fair number of uh, angel investors, whether it's through angel networks like Maine, which is the Manila Angel Investors Network, or former founders, right? Like who have exited their companies and, or, or even not even former founders can be, they're still running their business. So, you know, doing well and uh, they want to start like giving back and investing in, in companies. We, we see a lot more kind of founders investing in, in startups. And I would say conglomerates plus the families behind them, like on an individual basis, like are also more getting into it. So I would say there's definitely a lot more like capital available. And, and I, I should mention also that regional investors have started to look at the Philippines, right? And a couple of reasons b behind that, like, I think one, a record amount of dry powder was raised in Southeast Asia last year, like $3 billion, I think, or something. And, you know, there's capital that's pivoting from China into Southeast Asia, and there's capital that's moving out of Indonesia because the market is very frothy there into the Philippines, which is the second biggest market in the region with our 7,641 islands. And, and so I think capital is also becoming more abundant. And then the market, as we've discussed, right? The, the market is just there. Like we've gone from seven in 2019 to 17 in 2021. So I think it's a great time, great time to, to start something in, in the Philippines. Yeah. Thank you, John, for joining me today again. Absolutely. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, the, it was a good conversation. It was a fun conversation. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
If you like this podcast, please follow Understanding VC wherever you're listening to this and also share it with folks who might be interested. Thank you.